Hello, I'm Nancy Guthrie, and I want to welcome you to the study of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, four of the books of Moses. These books tell us the story of Israel's emergence from slavery in Egypt, her sojourn in the wilderness, and her preparation for living in the Promised Land. But actually, these books tell us a much greater story than just the story of the ancient Israelites. This story tells us some significant things about our own emergence from slavery, our own sojourn in the wilderness we call life on earth, and our own preparation for living in the promised land of the new heaven and new earth. I hope you have your own copy of the companion book, The Lamb of God, which you will need to complete your preparation for coming together to watch the video each week. So complete that personal Bible study before you come so you'll have the background you need to grasp what I will teach. There will be several weeks in which we cover a whole book in one week, and so without that study prior to coming, you may have a hard time tracking with me. The teaching chapter in the book contains the same material I'll be presenting on the video, so you have several options. You can read the chapter before you come, or just wait and listen to me present it, or you might find it helpful to go back and read it after you've watched the video, you do what works best for you. Jesus said to the people of his day, people who cherished the writings of the great prophet Moses, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Certainly, those who were standing in front of Jesus that day when he said those words wondered, where did Moses write about you, Jesus? Well, it's that question we will seek to ask and answer over the coming 10 sessions together, beginning with today's study of several ways in which Moses himself served to point to Jesus as deliverer, mediator, and prophet. I worked at a publishing company for a long time before my name ever appeared in a book. In their acknowledgments, authors often thanked people such as the acquisitions editor who contracted the book or the copy editors who worked on the manuscript, people they worked with prior to the book's publication. But as the publicist, I usually didn't become involved until after the book was shipped off to the printer, so my name never seemed to make it into any of the published books. But finally, after working there for about six years, an author put my name in his book. Max Lucado, one of the most gracious and authentic authors I ever worked with, mentioned me in the acknowledgments in the front of his book, The Applause of Heaven, and I had a new claim to fame, proof that I not only knew Max Lucado, but more importantly, he knew me. When someone people know and respect writes about a person, it makes us more willing to read or listen to what that person has to say. This is why you and I like to look through the endorsements on the covers of book jackets, because we're looking for names we recognize in the list of endorsers. Because when someone we respect has taken the time to read what a writer has written and offers an endorsement that commends it as worthwhile, we're usually more inclined to read the book. Now imagine if you could say that someone who lived hundreds of years before you, someone who wrote a book that everyone you know has read and reread and sought to live by wrote about you. Imagine that you could say 
that the book he wrote not only mentioned you, but was actually all about you. That you were the central character in all of his writings. The person whose identity had been kept hidden from all who had read his book throughout the centuries. Now that would be an astounding claim. But that is exactly the claim Jesus made. In an interchange with the religious leaders of his day, who were questioning his right to assume authority that had always been reserved for God alone, Jesus claimed that the book, written by the one author whom his questioners respected more than any other, was actually all about him. In John 5, we read, You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For Moses wrote of me. Well, we can almost see them shaking their heads with quizzical looks on their faces, thinking, Jesus, what do you mean that Moses wrote about you? And where exactly did Moses write about you? These were A-plus students of the book of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Most of them could quote long passages from Moses' writings and did so on a daily basis. And here was Jesus telling them that what they had been reading and studying their whole lives was all about him. He was suggesting that there was actually a deep fault line, a huge blind spot in their understanding. This general lack of understanding about how to read the Old Testament was why in the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, Jesus sat down with his disciples, men who had grown up reading the Old Testament scriptures, and he taught them how to truly understand the scriptures, how to read them in light of their fulfillment. Luke writes that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus opened his disciples' eyes to see all of the ways that Moses and all of the other Old Testament writers wrote about him. And this is what we want him to do. This is what we want him to open our eyes to see. We don't want to be like the religious people of Jesus' day who regularly went to Bible study, yet were so stuck in their long-held assumptions about the Bible, so bogged down by the long to-do list they derived from it, that they completely missed what it was all about. Namely, who it was all about. Well, if you've done the previous study in this series, the promised one, seeing Jesus in Genesis, then perhaps you could list many of the ways that Moses wrote about Christ in the first book of the Bible. When Moses wrote in Genesis 3.15 about the offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, he was writing about Jesus. In his account of the ark in which Noah and his family found safety in the storm of God's judgment. He was writing about the nature of salvation found by those who hide themselves in Christ. And when he wrote about God's call and promise to Abraham, that in him all the families of the earth shall be blessed, 
he was writing about the blessing available to people of every tribe and tongue through Abraham's future descendant, Jesus. And when Moses took 13 chapters to tell the story of Joseph, the beloved son of his father, who was rejected by his brothers and became the one person all people in the world had to come to for salvation, he was writing in shadow form about the greater Joseph, Jesus himself. We'll see in this study, as we make our way through the rest of the writings of Moses, that he has much more to tell us about the Christ who would come 1,500 years after he wrote about him in his book. In Moses' account of his own life, as one who was born under the threat of death, one who left the royal palace to identify with his suffering brothers, one who led his people out of slavery, we will see the shadow of Jesus. Jesus, who left the halls of heaven to be born under Herod's murderous edict for baby boys. Jesus, who led his people out of captivity to sin. In the unblemished lambs who died that first Passover night so that the firstborn son could live, we will see Jesus, God's firstborn, the lamb who was slain so that we can live as we witness Moses lead his people through the waters of the Red Sea unscathed, we will see Jesus who leads us through the waters of death into everlasting life. In the pillar of cloud and fire that guided God's people, in the manna that fed them, and the rock that gushed with water for them to drink, we will see the light of the world, the bread of life, the living water, Jesus himself. As we listen to the law given by God on the mountain, we'll hear its echo in the words of Jesus, who also climbed up on a mountain and spoke with authority about what it means to obey God from the heart. We'll go over Moses' record of the design for the tabernacle in which God descended to dwell among his people, details that have no meaning apart from Jesus who descended to dwell among his people. We'll witness the establishment of the priesthood, those who were to be holy to the Lord, who would offer sacrifices for sin. And in the priest's clothing and ceremonies and sacrifices, we'll see that Moses was preparing his people to grasp the great high priest, the Holy One of God, who offered himself as a once-for-all sacrifice. We'll follow Israel's 40 years in the wilderness where they repeatedly disobeyed and rebelled and we'll see the contrast between them and Jesus, the true Israel, who went out into the wilderness for 40 days, meeting every temptation with perfect obedience. We'll begin today by giving attention to something Moses wrote near the end of his last book, Deuteronomy. A prophetic promise and instruction for God's people as they prepare to cross over the Jordan and enter the Promised Land. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy, if you haven't already. Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And the Lord said, skipping down, to verse 18, I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them 
all that I commanded him. Now, this is interesting. Moses was a prophet, not so much in the sense that he foretold the future, but in that he spoke for God to the people. God installed Moses as his first official prophet to Israel when the Israelites arrived at Mount Sinai because the Israelites were too terrified to hear God speak directly to them. They asked Moses to go up on the mountain in their place and hear what God had to say and then relay it back to them so they wouldn't have to hear God's thunderous voice. So Moses listened to God for the people and he spoke to the people for God. Evidently, the same spirit who imparted God's word to Moses for the people also imparted understanding to Moses about himself. An understanding that God had woven into the fabric of his life a pattern that would also be seen in the Messiah's life. God sovereignly orchestrated Moses' life in such a way that it would one day become clear that his ministry had been a miniature version of the ministry of the coming prophet. Numerous aspects of Moses' life provided God's people with pictures of the promised one, the Messiah God promised to send. If God's people would remember who Moses was and what he had accomplished and experienced, it would help them to recognize the Messiah when he came. He would be the one they would need to listen to even more intently than they had listened to Moses. So as we begin our study of these four books of the Pentateuch written by Moses, let's take a mini tour of Moses' life in order that we might see more clearly and listen more intently to the greater prophet that God raised up from among God's people who was like Moses. When we read the story of the Israelites, found in Exodus through Deuteronomy. We can't miss the fact that Moses was truly a great deliverer. He stood up to the greatest power in the world in his day and demanded that Pharaoh release his two million strong slave labor force. Moses delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt and through the Red Sea by the power of God and led them for 40 years in the wilderness. But while he delivered them, out of slavery, he couldn't deliver them into the promised land. He could only take them to its border. Moses couldn't go in. Oh, how this must have been an agony for Moses, who had invested his whole life and all of his hopes and dreams in delivering God's people into the land that God had promised to them. But Moses forfeited that privilege by dishonoring God near the end of the journey in the wilderness. We read about this event in Numbers 20, an event that took place as the people of Israel stood poised to enter into the promised land. They'd run out of water and had nothing to drink. But instead of just going to God and asking him to provide, they began to complain. But really, they did more than that. As they voiced their complaint about the lack of water, it was as if, 40 years worth of frustration rose to the surface so that all kinds of unresolved grievances came tumbling out against Moses and against God. Look in Numbers chapter 20, beginning of verse 3. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. 
Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. So here they were, just about to enter the promised land, saying that they wished they had died with all of those who had rebelled against God and perished in the desert. They were frustrated because the wilderness had no grain or vines or fig trees or pomegranates. The very fruit that the scouts had brought back with them from Canaan. In other words, the people were blaming Moses and Aaron because the wilderness was not like the promised land that they had refused to enter. Now we might expect that God would have had enough by this point and that he would simply sink these grumbling Israelites into a pit in the desert, never to be heard from again. But instead, he gave instructions to Moses and Aaron to provide water for them to drink. Look down in verse 8. Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. Moses and Aaron were to take the staff, that same staff that had summoned Egypt's plagues and divided the Red Sea. Perhaps when people saw the staff, they would remember God's past deliverances and provisions and put their trust in him. Moses and Aaron were to speak to the rock. Perhaps the stark contrast between the rock's responsiveness to God's word and their own hard-hearted unresponsiveness would shame them into repentance and faith. Moses and Aaron followed the first two steps correctly. They took the staff and they assembled the people. But they didn't tell the rock to yield its water. Instead, Moses spoke to the people. Look in verse 10. Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. Moses was supposed to speak to the rock. God had not told him to speak to the people. But Moses rebuked them. And he set himself up as their judge and himself and Aaron as their deliverers by suggesting that they were the ones who would bring water out of the rock. And what was God's response? Look in verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Whoa, we want to say. That seems incredibly harsh. After all that Moses has been through in the desert, after all of his faithful obedience and the difficulties of leadership, God is going to deny him the privilege of leading his people into the promised land. This hits us initially as an overreaction, a great unfairness to Moses. And yet we know that God is just. So what is it that we may not be seeing on the surface of things here? Once before, long ago, Moses had set himself up as judge and deliverer of his people. When he saw an Egyptian beating an Israelite, Moses killed the Egyptian without being instructed to do so by the Lord. 
And now here he was, years later, once again, trying to deliver God's people in his own way through his own strength. And because the rock represented God himself, the source of water and refreshment to his people, when Moses struck the rock two times in anger, it was nothing less than a direct assault on God. And the sad irony was that in judging the people and seeking to deliver them his own way, Moses and Aaron became exactly what they accused the people of being, rebels against the Lord. And therefore, their consequences were the same as those experienced by the entire generation that rebelled against God. They would not enter the land God had promised. Clearly, Moses was a great deliverer. But what was needed was a greater deliverer, one who would not rebel against God, but submit to him. One who would deliver God's people, not just out of slavery, but safely into the land that God has promised. One who was not just a servant, but a son. Who, when he sets people free, they are free indeed. In addition to being a great deliverer, Moses was a great mediator. For over 40 years, he listened to the complaining of the people and pleaded their case before a God who felt and heard their complaints as a personal rejection. Moses entered into the cloud of God's presence on the mountain and brought down God's law to the people, gently explaining all of its provisions and applications. And more than once, Moses went to God with petitions for needed provision, and God heard and provided. And more than once, God told Moses to take up his rod of judgment and mediate judgment on those who had rebelled against him. But perhaps Moses' finest moment as a mediator was on that day when he came down from Mount Sinai with two tablets on which God himself had written his law. Joshua, who was with him, thought he heard singing. And when they got down the mountain, they saw the golden calf and the people dancing around it. And it was clear that though the people were no longer in Egypt, Egypt's idolatry was still very much in the people. Turn to Exodus 32. We read, The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Perhaps Moses thought it through overnight and remembered the sacrifices of the Hebrew patriarchs and the newly instituted sacrifice of the Passover. Certainly God had shown by such sacrifices that he was prepared to accept an innocent substitute in place of the just death of the sinner. His wrath could sometimes fall on the substitute. Look back in Exodus 32. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses was asking God to forgive the Israelites 
but he knew he had no solid basis on which to ask for that pardon. So he suggested an alternative. As a faithful mediator, Moses presented himself as a sacrifice of atonement, offering himself to God as a substitute, that he might take upon himself the punishment that Israel deserved because of her great sin. Moses was willing to be damned so that Israel could be saved. But God was not willing to accept the life of Moses to atone for Israel's sin. Exodus 32 doesn't tell us why God didn't accept the sacrifice of Moses as Israel's mediator, but we know why from the rest of Scripture. Moses couldn't die for his people's sin because he himself was a sinner. As great as Moses was as a mediator, a better mediator was needed. A sinless substitute who would not only be willing to lay down his life for his friends, but would also be worthy to atone for the sins of God's people. So Moses was a great deliverer and mediator, and he was also a prophet among prophets. In the years after Moses said that God would raise up a prophet like me, God raised up many prophets who spoke for God to his people. As God moved his eternal purposes forward, history was punctuated with new words from God that were spoken through his many prophets. But the people of Israel revered Moses the most because he surpassed all of the other prophets God sent over the years. In fact, God himself described Moses this way in Numbers 12. Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, but not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. At the very end of Deuteronomy, we read an addendum to Moses' writings, likely added after his death, which also emphasizes Moses' distinction. In Deuteronomy 34, verses 10 through 12, it says, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all of his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Other prophets performed miracles such as Elijah, who brought down fire, and Elisha, who brought a dead boy back to life. But no prophet's miracles compared with Moses' miracles of plagues striking and the Red Sea parting and manna falling and water gushing from a rock. God spoke to other prophets through visions and dreams, but Moses met personally with God in the tent of meeting. We read about this in Exodus 33. Look at verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. Now skip down to verse 9. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. Then verse 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. 
when we read that they spoke face to face, it doesn't mean that God had a human face or that Moses could fully see God. Just a few verses later, we read that God said, no one may see me and live. Face to face is a figure of speech that reveals the personal nature of Moses' communication with God, which was unlike any man had ever experienced since Adam and Eve had walked with God in the Garden of Eden. But this incredible communication was not enough for Moses. He wanted to see and experience everything of God that there was to see and experience. So he pleaded with God, please show me your glory. Though he had seen God's glory blazing in the bush and burning in the pillar of fire and had been engulfed in the cloud when he went up on the mountain, somehow Moses knew there was still more to see of God's glory. And so in kindness, God responded to Moses' request. Look at Exodus 33. Verse 19, I will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. God's answer to Moses' request was a yes and a no. His goodness would pass by for a moment, but Moses would not be able to gaze upon the fullness of God's glory. If Moses were to see a complete revelation of God in his eternal being, it would be so overwhelming that it would destroy him. When Moses emerged from the presence of God, his face glowed with the glory of God. The skin of his face was shining so that the people were afraid of him, and he had to put a veil over his face. But with time, the glory faded. You see, it was imparted glory, a glory that he only reflected for a time. And what was needed was a prophet who was no mere reflector of God's glory, but one who radiated God's glory from his own being, one who was in himself the radiance of the glory of God. When God promised to raise up a prophet like Moses, he was promising to send one who communed with God face to face like Moses had done, which is what makes the first words of John's gospel so significant. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Here was more than a word from God, but the very word who was God, the word who had related to God face to face since before the beginning of time. Here was a prophet who had not only seen God's form, but was in the form of God, yet did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The glory of God was emptied into a human body so that it was veiled by flesh day to day, but there was one point in his ministry when Jesus gave his inner circle a glimpse 
of this intrinsic luminescent glory. It was a few days after Peter had boldly proclaimed Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, but then later foolishly rebuked Jesus for saying he would be going to Jerusalem and would suffer many things and be killed and on the third day rise again. Jesus knew the disciples needed to have their confidence grounded so firmly in Christ that they would be able to take up their own cross and follow him. What they needed was a glimpse of his glory. In Matthew 17, we read, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. For a brief moment, the veil of humanity was peeled back, and Jesus' true essence was allowed to shine through. The glory that was always his became visible. In Luke's account of this same scene, in Luke 9, Luke 9, 30 and 31, we read, Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So Moses and Elijah, two Old Testament prophets, were there on the mountain talking with the glorified Jesus. Both of these prophets had previously stood on a mountain and experienced God's glory. Moses caught a glimpse of it from inside the cleft of the rock, Elijah from the entrance of a cave. But they weren't there to talk with Jesus about their own previous experiences. Luke tells us that they were talking with Jesus about his departure, or literally his exodus. Imagine it. Moses, who had led the great exodus of God's people from Egypt, was talking to Jesus about the far greater exodus he was about to accomplish through his death. Moses must have realized that the exodus he had led was really only a preview of the main event to come. The death of Jesus would offer exodus not just for one oppressed people group, at one point in history, but to people from every nation of the earth for all time. This would not be a merely political or economic liberation, but a pervasive liberation from the power of sin and death. It makes perfect sense that Moses would want to talk to Jesus about his exodus. If Jesus did not die, the exodus Moses led would have no lasting meaning. The Passover he instituted and the entire sacrificial system he set up would have been pointless. If Jesus did not die, there would be no way for Moses or anyone else to enter into the true promised land that Canaan always pointed to. Everything Moses lived for and wrote about depended on the coming of this prophet like him. The sacrifice of this perfect lamb his passing through the waters of death and emerging alive to lead his people through the wilderness of life in this world into the land that God has promised and prepared. No other topic of conversation was worthy of this mountaintop meeting. As they spoke, another voice entered into the conversation. Look in Luke 9, verse 34. 
A cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Since we've just read God's promise in Deuteronomy about the prophet he would raise up, we realize that here on the mountain, God was quoting himself. He had instructed his people through Moses that they should listen to the prophet he would raise up. And surely Peter, James, and John, having grown up hearing the promise of the prophet to come, would have made this connection. When they heard the words about Jesus, listen to him. But more important than making the connection was following the instruction. And it's more important for us too. Throughout this study, if we find the connections between Christ and the book of Moses interesting, but don't truly listen, don't truly take to heart their implications, we're going to miss what God intends for us. These words, listen to him, bring us to a crossroads at the center of our souls, forcing us to answer the questions, will I listen to Jesus? Will I listen to what he has to say about what brings true freedom? Will I take him up on his offer of himself as true bread and living water that will satisfy my soul forever? Will I allow what he says about himself to shape my view of God and what pleases him, even if it contradicts my long-held understandings? Will I respond to his invitation to come to him and take his yoke upon me and find rest for my soul? Jesus said, my sheep listen to my voice. Are you willing over the weeks to come to carve out time to open up your Bible and engage with it, listening for the voice of your shepherd, who is also the lamb? God has raised up his prophet, and we must listen to him. Don't turn down the volume on him. Don't just dismiss him as irrelevant. Give his words more weight than those of even your own inner voice and opinions. He speaks the very words of God, words we are desperate to hear, words that reach places in our lives that nobody else knows anything about. So over the weeks to come, as we study the book of Moses, let's tune our ears to listen and our hearts to respond. Let's say to him gladly, as many faithful hearers have said before us, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening.